This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. I have to be down by three. So I'll watch the clock, Sean. Why don't we'll finish up at 2.55. You head on to your next thing. And then Katie and I often will say some concluding little snippets about how brilliant you were. Or not. I guess I'm staying on the call then. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I don't care what my three o'clock is. They can wait. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. All right, here we go. Hi, I'm Stephanie seidel Holmston, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts and a Provost Teaching Fellow. Hi, I'm Katie Dawson, Associate Professor in the College of Fine Arts and a Provost Teaching Fellow. Today, we are going to be talking about global classrooms. So what is it to bring our global research and partnerships into our everyday teaching practices? So perfect. We've brought Sean Thiriel in to talk with us today. Professor Thiriel has a partnership with a faculty member in France. We will get to that later, but first let me introduce you a little bit to Sean's work. Sean focuses on congressional decision-making. His current research efforts look at the effect of interpersonal relationships within the U.S. Congress. He has published a number of books about Congress, including one this year, Congress, the First Branch. He's also thought a bit about Newt Gingrich and has a book called The Gingrich Senators. Also book Party Polarization in Congress, The Power of the People, gives you a sense about what Sean has been up to. He has also won a lot of teaching awards. A whole bunch. A whole bunch, including the Friar Society Teaching Fellowship, the biggest undergraduate teaching award at the university. He's a member of the Academy of Distinguished Teachers and proudly a member of the Provost Teaching Fellows. So, Sean, we're excited about digging into your work. And let's start with your area of expertise. Tell us what attracted you to studying Congress. Yeah, so I've always really been interested in politics. And first, I should say thank you for that warm introduction. Um, if only my mother could hear that. <laughs> I'm sure she's proud. I've always been interested in politics, and I don't know why I was interested in politics. I did not come from a political family. My parents were, were good citizens. They always voted, but they were never involved in political campaigns. For whatever reason, from a very early age, I was just always really interested in politics. In fact, one of the ways that I learned how to read was that we would get these books on the presidents, where there would be a page each on each president. And my mom would read the first one on George Washington. I would read the second one on John Adams. She would read the third one on Thomas Jefferson. And so, right, the interest in politics was always deep. But while I learned about politics through the eyes of the presidents and learning about the president's lives, it was really when my interest went to Congress that it, I realized that it could become a life's pursuit for me. Because in addition to loving politics, I love interaction with people. And so when you study presidents, you study one person. When you study Congress, you study 435 people 
the House, you study 100 people in the Senate. You have to take into consideration all of their different preferences, their constituents, and then place on top of that structure and rules and how it is that they can actually come up with a decision. And so frequently, we are flabbergasted at how Congress can't pass this bill or that bill or get its act together. And I've always taken the opposite awe and that I'm amazed whenever Congress does decide anything. Wow. Right? When you have to deal with a committee of four people, right? Like, you're like, it is so hard. And then you're like, now there's more than 100 times more in the House of Representatives. And then you have to deal with this other body. Like, the extent that they can ever all get on the same page about anything, I think, is, is outstanding. So you sound like an optimist, <laughs> which we need a little bit of right now. So I think that is a that's a good thing. You know, I'm nothing if not an optimist. And right here, you get a little bit into my teaching philosophy, right? The students hear nothing but horrible things about politics and about Congress. And if I'm not an optimist, then the only thing that I'm doing is reinforcing all their opinions. There's no doubt that students still walk out of my class shaking their head at what Congress is an institution and what it does. But at least I hope I provide a little bit of context for them to understand how it is that Congress operates and and why it is that sometimes when we think they should get to a decision, they don't come to a decision. So are there particular ways, Sean, that you found over the years to talk to your students about Congress, especially during an election year, during an inherently polarizing time. What are some of your kind of teaching go-tos to navigate that complexity? Yeah, so one of the favorite things that I do in, in my Congress course is that on the first day, before they, they know anything about what I think about the institution, I ask them to list all of their criticisms of Congress. And then I hope that over the course of this semester, I give some context to each of those criticisms. So while it could be that they get to the end of this semester and they still have those exact same criticisms, they know why those criticisms exist. And so that's one of my favorite things to do. And to just go a little bit off the the polarization that we're all living in, I think it's so important inside the classroom that all the comments be directed towards me. And so before we enter our first debate, I say it's inappropriate for you to point at another student. It's inappropriate for you to characterize their argument in in a bad way. Like all of your arguments have to go through me. And so what I try to model a little bit is the exact same decorum rules that exist for the House and the Senate. I try to inflict on my students. And so when they start getting close to a line, like I'll start playing that role of the speaker and I'll be like, do you really mean to go there? And they're like, no, you're right. And so they'll step back from the line. And so those are a couple of the tools that I implement inside my classroom to make it, I think, a little bit educational and also a little bit fun at the same time. There's two things I hear you talking about, Sean, there. One about kind of both where are you like pulling from students' funds of knowledge or their lived experience at the top in a really amazing way. And also I hear you thinking a little bit about the models that you're kind of bringing in the discipline and like a really, I'm sorry, I'm from the art. So I have to say this, like a really practical embodied way, like getting to see and practice that decorum rule and what that feels like literally in my body in a class. And clearly students enjoy your classes like that. That is something that that feels good. I imagine that's a pretty powerful tool. Is that something you started with or is that something you developed over time? Oh, it's so hard to remember where these things come from. I mean, one of the things that I think that people generally hate having to do is sit in in other faculties' classrooms, right? Like when we're doing the peer evaluations or peer observation is what we call it now, right? Normally, we view this as an assignment 
but what, what I do is I steal all the best ideas so it may have been that I heard of these things in an early classroom. I've just taken it as my own. I developed a lot of these, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if there are threads going back to my eighth grade classroom or right. I had a mentor at the University of Richmond who is very instrumental in, in me pursuing higher education and becoming a professor myself. And so there's no doubt that I've stolen lots of ideas from him. But right, keying off what you said, I think it's so important to meet the students where they are, right? If I come in on the first day and I start off with the constitution, article one, and I start going like, their right eyes glass over and it, it couldn't be less relevant to their life. But if I start off and saying, all right, so you're in this class about Congress, what is it that you hate about this institution, right? We lay it out on the line. And one of the ways that I really uh, enjoy implementing the, the rules of Congress or legislative bodies more generally is after the first test, we'll talk about any potential curves. I'll ask if there are any amendments from the floor, right? Inevitably, the student will offer this awesome. crazy That's curve. That's so good. Crazy curve. And I was like, don't forget, I have absolute veto power and you can't override my veto. <laughs> uh, love it. I just think it's like such great contextualized language. I mean, it's like contextualizing those words in a way that that makes sense and also is fun. Right. Those rules in action, right? They feel how they work because they're sort of receiving them and having to interact within them. Maybe they become more sympathetic to what it's like to be a member of Congress. That's right. And I, at that point, you know, it's like the classroom is always tense. Like they've just been given their grades. They've been told how they're wrong. And I, like anything I can do to just lighten up the atmosphere and be like, look, like we're going to get through this. Like, and this is, a, it's also a team effort, right? Like let's figure out the decision. Like what's our curve? Why doesn't the government do something? That's what I'd like to know. What can they do? They're only people just like us. People my foot, they're Democrats. When you were describing, Sean, this idea of the students addressing you rather than each other. Do you see yourself as a blank slate reflecting the conversation or when do your own assessments of Congress or individual members come in? That's a really insightful question, Stephanie. And what I'll say is that my role has changed depending on the political context and we're living, right? So I get my job at the University of Texas right after George W. Bush is elected president. So he's Texan, lots of our students have lots of Texas pride. And so in my early early years, right? <laughs> Maybe when I was getting my footing inside of a classroom, I had a pretty balanced classroom. And so it was really easy to talk about politics because there were Democrats, there were Republicans, but there were Republicans who were, they were Republican because of George Bush and right, their parents were. And you had Democrats that didn't know why they were Democrats, but they could respect that our governor was now president. And so the classroom was, it was easy to manage. Um, and then with Barack Obama, it, it started becoming more difficult because when he's elected president, and of course, a great day for America, we have our first African-American president. But we also now have a classroom that's 85% in favor of Barack Obama. Not only did the 15% who didn't vote for him, they felt like they lost. And they feel like they're in an atmosphere where they're way outnumbered inside the classroom, but also inside the United States. And so I tried so hard to create space for them inside the classroom. And so I think in that space, I became much more, my students would say I became much more Republican. I was always saying, yeah, but you need to think about it from this light. And whenever I would say a phrase like that, it was always like, you need to think about it in a conservative way. And then we get Donald Trump 
And now you have 95% of the classroom who is opposed to Donald Trump. Quite frankly, there are lots of students in my class who feel the ramifications of his policy in a very real personal way. But yeah, you still have those students that deserve the space inside of a classroom to articulate their beliefs. And so I thought it was still, even in a highly polarized presidency where some of my students were being hurt daily because of the policies that he was pursuing, to try to create enough space inside that classroom for us to talk about what was happening in politics. And I I won't ever allow my classroom to become a a soap opera. Like I'm never gonna talk about the things that are irrelevant to Congress or American politics. Where I, I thought it was important was to create space where we could talk about conservative policies and where we could talk about the president's relationship to Congress. And when you're talking about this idea of sort of creating that space for the political diversity that we like to think is in our classroom, the other thing it does is it pushes the 85 or the 95 that can begin to create shortcuts for how they describe things or they begin to use cues to each other and they forget to defend those arguments with data and evidence. When you ask those questions, you're ensuring that everybody is thinking critically about their position. I think that's important. That's right, yeah, they're not sitting at lunch with a bunch of their friends, they're inside of a classroom. One of the classes that I teach is the politics of the Catholic Church, right? During normal times, I'm a practicing Catholic. And I view very much the classroom as being inside of a church. When you're inside of a classroom, you're inside of, and don't mean this in a religion, but you're inside sacred space. Right. Like we have been provided this amazing opportunity to be inside this room together. You all made the decision to enter my classroom. I have the greatest honor that you could give me and that you chose to take my class. And we need to honor the space in which we're all meeting. And that right, that space, as as it turns out, over the last nine months was through Zoom. But I still tried very much to to maintain that the sacredness of the space. Sean, that makes me think a lot about educational theorists who I love, Keith Sawyer, who talks about this idea of collective emergence, that there's this powerful thing that happens when we're all in the same place, doing and riffing and thinking and building upon each other's ideas, just like you're talking about that kind of richness of if we only hear our political views from one space, which a lot of us do right now, right? We have the people we listen to. So we don't get that multivocality. We don't get those informational spaces coming from different places. So what happens when we can create that sacred space of learning and have that collective emergence? Like that's why you show up for class because it matters because you're making that possible. So that's a really beautiful idea. Yeah, and one of the ways in which I think that this really played out this past semester, right? Like, I mean, I think that the fall 2020 semester will go down as like one of those transformative experiences in every student's life and every professor. Like, remember back then when we had to do that? So just because of the way in which we were living in the classes that I was teaching, the two classes I want to speak of right now, I was teaching a Gov 312. So this is one of the legislatively mandated classes. It was an elections 2020 class. And so I co-taught it with Bethany Albertson. And it would be, think of it as kind of like the next step in our intro to American government class. So we had lots of kids last year who took our Gov 310. And so we wanted this uh, space to have Gov 312. And then I was teaching an upper division uh, congressional elections class when so many classes got moved online because I had experience of teaching online. The government department decided to close down a lot of classes and put those students in my classroom. So I had 250 kids in that class. In both of those classes, we had flexibility with deadlines such that the students could complete the assignments anytime between class, which was live streamed in both instances, up to 44 hours, right? They had until noon, not the next day, but the following day. 
right? To just provide them with lots of, of flexibility and getting that stuff done. And so they could watch the class anytime they wanted in that time frame to do any quizzes or class assignments or anything that, that was assigned. But in both of those classes, about 75% of the students were live streaming in both of them. And I think that it was very much because of this collective enterprise. It's hard to do that in live stream. I mean, I think I was more successful in the 250 person class only because the numbers were there for me to incorporate more student voices. But even the 1200 person class, we incorporated student voices all the time. And I think that students, I mean, of course, things come up and and they would happily watch the video later. But 75% of them on average would show up for the live stream. We took that both as a, as a badge of honor, but also as a, a warning sign that we needed, right, to live up to them having enough faith in us to watch it live. And so we, we took it as an extra burden when we were designing the class. You weren't the only ones that saw it as sacred space or sacred time. They were right. as well, it sounds like. Yep. Thinking of collective enterprises, I want to turn a little bit to something else that you tried this fall that was new. You partnered with a university in France. Our university has been emphasizing global communities reaching across disciplines supported through Texas Global. I did a global virtual exchange with partners in Chile and Peru, creating an international research clusters with students from Austin and Lima and Santiago doing research around pressing global issues. And I also did one. Stephanie, I uh, just last year had a partnership with South Australia, a university there, as well as two universities in Bosnia-Herzegovina from kind of different cantons of different ethnic orientations. And we were all looking together at culturally responsive practices in education and using the arts as a mediating tool. So it's a really complex but interesting space to learn from each other. So tell us a bit about your work in France. So this goes back to the end of last year. So almost a year ago. In fact, a year ago, I was in Sciences Po, Sciences Po Lyon, who is my partner. And I taught a short class on party polarization in the United States, right, which is definitely my research interest. And the reason that Sciences Po Lyon wanted professors like me to show up is because in the first two years at Sciences Po Lyon, all the students stay in Sciences Po and they'll get some exposure to American professors or Chinese professors or South American professors or professors from around the globe. And then in their third year, they go abroad. They can generally choose the country. Some countries are more competitive than other countries. And then in the fourth year, they come back and they start doing their senior thesis and and stuff like that with this like global experience now that they've had learning from professors from around the the world. um, And I'm bringing those experiences back to Sciences Po Lyon. And so I had a wonderful stay in Lyon and, and I developed a relationship with some of the faculty members there. And so when I was leaving there, like, you know, we need to do this again or we need to figure out a way to like have me be a, a more integral part or like we need to just build on what we started here last year. And then March hit and there was a global pandemic and Sciences Po Lyon, their third year away, like they couldn't do that. Right. There were so few. Yeah, there were so few countries that were accepting them. And so on the fly, they designed this program of like, all right, so now we're going to try and have the American professors come into Sciences Po Lyon and teach what they would traditionally teach if they were back on campus. Right. So I had to modify my class last year to suit the, the parameters that we were operating under. And those restrictions were off. They asked me and I was like, oh, that sounds great. And so we talked about some of the classes that I would do. And then I saw this announcement about the global virtual exchange. And I was like, how much better 
instead of having me zoom in to France, why don't we create a classroom that is both a UT professor, a Sciences Po Lyon professor, and then students from both UT and Sciences Po Lyon. So I, I talked to my, my partner there and she said, oh, this is great. And so we decided and then we were kicking around ideas. She studies state and local governments. I study Congress. And so there were definitely some things that we could have done. And then we just stumbled upon this idea of like, why don't we do a class on the politics of COVID? We'll start the class and this and this thing will be really like high of mind. Like this is the reason that they're having to zoom into class instead of going into classrooms. And then by the time we get to Thanksgiving or so, like COVID will be in our rear view mirror. We'll be able to start analyzing. <laughs> We'll be able to start analyzing like some of the government policies that really worked and why we're now like thinking of this in past tense. And lo and behold, over the course of the semester, this is just becoming more and more real. Right. So Texas is coming down at the same time that France is going up and Europe is going up. And then as three or four weeks later, then the United States starts going back up and Right. I mean, talk about your sacred spaces. Right. We were just so thrilled to have these students that were taking a class that is this total experiment by these professors who aren't, who don't study pandemics, who aren't public health scholars, but they know something about the way the governments make decisions. They know something about how government decisions are implemented. And so we brought like our kind of own framework to the the class. And, And it was just, right, it became a real special class for us. And over the course of the semester, what was clear to us is better than providing an academic setting for the students, it was even more important to provide a setting for the Mm -hmm. students, right? Not necessarily academic. I mean, it was certainly adhered to the principles of academia and and stuff like that, but it became a space for them to talk about like the roommate having COVID and what that means and and what quarantine looks like for them and having to wait for a test. And and right over the course of the semester, we had four or five students who, who, who developed COVID. And, wow. and some of them, right, like we're, we're pretty sick for a couple of weeks. One student's mom came into the hospital during the class and then left the hospital during the class. And so it, it became so much more important, I think, that we just created the space for them to just talk about these sorts of things. Again, they weren't with their friends. I mean, we all became friends by the end of the class, but it was an academic setting. So we respected the space that we were operating in. But nonetheless, a lot of that was their own personal reactions to things that were going on. In fact, I can remember there was one point where it looked like things in Texas were going well. This must have been like, oh, end of September, early October. Like we were starting to settle down and and France was just starting to spike, right? Because everyone had come back from their summer vacations. They had started mixing with new populations and and the number of of cases was going way up. And and I I told the the American students, I said, you need to reach out to your friends, uh, right? Because by that point, they were all working in groups. And I was like, just check in on them. I was detecting in class last week that they were just so deflated and they were just so defeated. Just like, tell them a little bit about your experiences from the summer. Like after we had the spikes after July 4th and Memorial Day, like help them through this. By all accounts, they did. And that I think helped really congeal the class and, and why um, I think it became such a really important class. I hope for the students, but certainly for me too, right? Like to have that kind of uh, format. So we're going to try and do this class again <laughs> this spring. And my hope is that by the time we get to spring break, we'll be able to start talking about the class or COVID in in past tense. So tell me some of the details. I mean, how does a class like that create students that call each other friends, even though they're in different countries? 
Yeah, and this is where uh, your group was so important, right, Stephanie? So Stephanie put together a, a group of people who had taught Global Virtual Exchange. We're in the pro- people who had taught it, people were in the process of teaching it. But I really felt after the first couple of sessions where what you need to realize is that your voice is important. Your voice is the only voice that's important. Like you need to create space for them to talk to each other. And so heading into, right, even the first couple of classes, we were building in not only breakout rooms, but group projects and group assignments, right? We didn't want them to sit around and sing Kumbaya. We wanted them to sit down and and start trying to figure out, start to intellectualize the experience that they were going through. I think that that just by having those, I mean, breakout rooms was important for sure, but I think equally important was having assignments and having projects so that they could talk about COVID at the same time that they're accomplishing something academic at the same time. Makes me think a little bit also about just the idea of global pandemic and having a very concretized experience with someone globally happening virtually. My virtual exchange project happened and was set up and then kind of fell apart because of COVID last spring, at least a part of it. So we had to kind of refigure it and do it in a different way. The, all these books we ordered that we were going to share never showed up because the supply chain and, you know, just things like that, all those logistical things. And so it became a really interesting experience, though, because it was very early in the COVID time in March and April to have a dialogue about what was happening. And this was in Eastern Europe at that point with Bosnia Herzegovina and the students just were really interested to hear about those different experiences. I think it just made that idea of global pandemic much more understood in their brains because both they were having these shared things and the countries were dealing with different times within that process. That's right. I mean, these spikes were happening at different times and we were learning about effective treatments at different times and the national leadership was acting very differently at different times. And laid on top of that, just some of the fundamental lessons about federalism in the United States. The fact that Texas really had a lot of power in determining some things. I mean, it was was great. We gave a survey early on in this class to both uh, students in our class, but also students to the general population at Seance Polion and then to my uh, Gov312 class. Who was responsible for deciding these? Who who do you think should be responsible for, for these sorts of things? So everything from the development of vaccine to whether or not bars should be open, to parks being open, to testing protocols. And we said, should this be the national government, the state government? or the local government. And so you can imagine when you ask American students, these different decisions should be decided at different levels. And the French student, that was just a completely foreign concept to them. They're like, there is no like of this regional distinction. Like we are a country of France and we will conquer this as a country together. And and they're like, local government? Like, no, local government take their dictates from the national government. And it was just fascinating to see just the way the forms of government that we've chosen and the way that they've developed had an influence on on what was taking place in response to COVID. And to think that you might learn about your own system a bit more through the eyes of somebody else. And what does federalism mean when you think about elections or a global pandemic? We run 50 elections, you know, but you can't absorb that meaning until you see it from another perspective where someone says, wait, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. And I don't think we should always have to teach these courses during COVID. That probably wouldn't be the best template. But I do see something really, the thing I'm also hearing coming across, which I think is at the heart of Global Classroom, is having a shared experience that then you can look at through your own cultural framework and norms and socialization and all the other things that come about in systems. And so you had that, of course, as COVID as that thing, which then gave us that, you know, common experience, which then again, that's, I think, also 
even going back to what I first heard you talk about, Sean, in terms of your teaching, trying to let people both see where their perspectives get developed and come from, that sort of systems development that we all have, and also being able to understand or see where someone else's might be different and why. It's funny, in the beginning of the semester, just the, the way, right, you're dealing with seven hour difference between France and, and Texas. And so we were teaching this class on Friday morning, which is perfect for American students. It was less perfect for French students because it meant it was Friday afternoon, but they managed and they were great. Initially, that my partner and I are like, oh my gosh, how are we going to fill up two and a half hours of time? And then by the time we got to the end of the class, we're like, oh my gosh, we have so much different material. Like, how can we limit this to two and a half hours? <laughs> And what you're saying also makes me think about how social learning really is. Your insight about letting the students talk with each other. This is what I hear repeatedly in evaluations of my global virtual exchanges. Students still just yearn for time with students in other places. And I tend to want to structure that sometimes. I think it is important that these are collaborative projects. They produce something that wasn't there throughout the semester, but it's not just about the academic conversations. It's just chances to be together. I mean, to be a young person in this time, what does that look like? What does that mean? What sorts of challenges do we all face? What challenges are different? You know, these are that social element of learning really comes out in these experiences. And I'm, I'm disappointed that we thought of this too late for it to have an effect for the spring semester. But we so wish that we had decided to teach the class on either like Monday, Wednesday or Tuesday, Thursday. So we'd have an hour and 15. And what we would do is we would have one class be us, right, kind of structured, like here are the readings and stuff like that. And then the other class would be like, here's an hour and 15 minutes in your schedule that's been set aside that we know you're free. So you can work on your group projects. We could give you weekly assignments and that can be totally your time. And right, of course we can do that with a two and a half hour block of time too, but we all get tired, right? And so if we have an hour hour and 15 minutes of content, it's hard to then say, all right, so now break up into your groups and and do your your projects. And and we're gonna try and figure out a way to manage this a little bit better than we did in the fall semester, But, but giving them the time to be with each other when their brain power is still high rather than at the end of an hour and 15 minute class. That's such an important learning in it. I love that because that also, that applies to all online, which we're all doing right now. So, and global classroom will always have an online element to it because we're obviously working in different countries and time zones and all that bit. So I think that that's a really great point I'm going to take from this conversation, Sean, about that idea of, of breaking that up. I think both for anything virtually, but particularly for these global spaces. There are all sorts of horrible ways in which COVID has affected our, our teaching models, right? Like, I mean, just look at the fall 2020 semester. But like this to me will just always be like, I would not have taught this class if it hadn't been for COVID. Because we all had to become experts on Zoom in about two weeks, right? Like the class, I think, just ended up being so much better because of COVID. I mean, it, right, it starts with its existence. And then I think the class was, was better because of it. And maybe we were more attentive to things that we might not have otherwise have been. I often think about my, you know, the big classrooms and the students come filing in and they see each other. We see our t-shirts and our baseball caps and the stickers on the back of the computers. And you pick up these cues from each other. And in Zoom, it's flattened, none of those cues. And so we did start thinking about, well, how do I help students share those aspects about 
one another and about themselves with each other. And I think that it sounds like you really embrace that. And I love the idea of using class time for some of that collaboration because I'm often sensitive to the fact that really the only thinking of sacred space, the only commitment the student has to me is that time slot of school. And then after that, we know that some students go home and take care of an elderly family member or a younger family member, or they work a job and other students don't. And that division is very important to the lived experiences of those students. And if my class exacerbates that difference because I'm demanding that they make time available outside of class, I. I have to think really critically about what I'm asking. And I love this idea of using class time for that collaborative work. That's the sacred space. Everybody's got it. Use that. Yeah. And especially when you're trying to balance time zones too. Because now the, right, instead of have, thinking of 12 hours in which we could meet, right, it's shrunk now to about four hours. A challenge certainly that came up for me that I was thinking a lot about was also about assessment and how, particularly when you're working, I mean, you know, across a lot of different systems who may have different assessments already required, different kinds of university assessments or spaces or, or methods or modules or language around it. So I'm, how, how did you handle some of that, Sean? Yeah, that was really hard and we didn't do a good job and I'm okay with that. At the end of the day, this class for me was very much a class of experience. And so if the students participate in that experience, then, then I'm not gonna be ashamed of, of giving them high grades. At the end of the class, we asked the students, right, working in, in groups of four, so two American students, two Sciences Po Leon students, uh, to develop any project that they wanted that was related to COVID, right? So we had everything from the way that COVID affected the entertainment industry to the way that different regions would ship patients across geographic boundaries because of just availability of hospital beds, right, to uh, COVID and the environment. And so what I was really proud of them is that they took their own individual interests that they had pre-COVID and then figured out a way to tie it into class, right? So clearly you had the kids who were interested in entertainment. They're like, oh, this is gonna be about entertainment and COVID. And then you had the kids who were interested in environment. And they're like, oh, this class, this, our project's gonna be environment. And so the last three classes, we turned the class over to the student projects. And so they each had 25 minutes to present their student project and they could do it in any way that they wanted. So it could be a video, it could be uh, breakout rooms, it could be reading the short article on reaction, it could be a PowerPoint, it could be a combination of anything that we've just talked about. And this is a, a tip I also got from Stephanie's working group, is next time we're gonna incorporate that earlier in the spring, but not the, the full-blown project, but having them take ownership over parts of the class. And the, the reason I think that's so important is because then they realize how hard it is right? Like they realize that, oh, it actually helps when you actually can see people's faces. And so maybe I should try and turn my camera on. So instead of the default being like, my camera's going to be off unless I'm asking a question, the default becomes, I'm going to leave my camera on unless if I need to, to manage something or deal with something that would embarrass me. And if I can just flip that switch, and if I can do it in week one or two, instead of having in, until they're in week 11 and they're like, oh, when we're just talking to a bunch of names or, or even worse, like blank, right? It, it, it's hard. So, right, using some of the tips from Stephanie's group, I've already figured out how in the first couple of weeks, we're just going to turn the class around right away so that they see how difficult it is. And then I think that they will ultimately take much more ownership over, over the collective experience.
gosh, I tie that so beautifully to your opening story about your own class and using kind of a response that simulated the Congress. So like those, it just makes me think so much about how teachers and right, the kind of everything we're doing is instructing something, right? We're, we're setting a culture of learning. We're setting a way of foregrounding what it has worth. Your, your lived experiences have worth in this classroom, or I'm going to be modeling for you a procedural thing that is a kind of big theme or concept that we're trying to get at in the class. So that's really smart, Sean. It, it's a great reminder about like how everything we can be do could be seeding those things. And, and particularly in a global virtual exchange, you've really got to hone down because you have so many other factors that are really hard. Like what are those big things and maybe not getting too complex. And I also hear you talking about kind of letting go. If you had to talk about a big learning moment from it all, what would be, and you've talked about some already, but like, what would be a, like a big takeaway that you took from all of it? So the big takeaway I think is that, and this is true, certainly in the global virtual exchange class, but it's no different than any of the other classes that I've taught is that whenever you empower the students, they'll never let you down. And so, right. We learned it very vividly with the presentations that they gave um, in the COVID in the last three weeks. But I learned it earlier in the semester in, in my Gov 312 class when we had some of the congressional candidates who are running around Austin come into our class. And instead of us asking them questions, we challenged the students to ask them questions. And so the students uh, would have to submit a, just a short video, 15 seconds to 30 seconds. And wow, they, like they would go to the Canada's web pages and they'd be like, hey, I noticed that you support that policy. Like, what would you do in this instance that would be like, how would you manage that? I mean, a couple of the candidates, including Wendy Davis, right? I mean, a very experienced, like, like politician. She like sat back and she's like, wow, I've never thought of it in that way. Wow. I had to be like, all right, so this is right. And she I means she's a smart woman. She can handle these th sorts of things. But it was clear that the students took ownership over it. And anytime you, you give the students power, they just always make the experience better. So true. I like what you're thinking about, too, with assessment, Katie, your question. Sometimes things happen that we can't measure on the grade book. And Sometimes students will take experiences and they become seeds of something else that's possible. And so engaging with an elected official and actually asking a question and getting an answer or teaming up with somebody in another country that maybe has a different first language than you do. You know, we're not going to assess that impact completely on that grade book, but I bet those are seminal experiences that are going to shape some decision in the future for those students about what is possible for them. Yeah, that's right. If we've learned anything about 2020, I think that it's, it's, it's grace and mercy, right? Like, I mean, just as I felt like our students the entire semester were extending that to us, like, I just think that if we start off with a position of grace and mercy, then the intellectual exercise is going to be far better than if we start off, right? Like, I mean, it's so funny that the language that we use, I have to transition my class to online. If that's where you start, like if you're going to take your old class and figure out a way to transition it to online, like that's just going to be a horrible experience for you and an even worse experience for your students. You're like, all right, so now I have to teach a class called Elections 2020. We're going to be totally online with 1,200 kids. How are we going to make this the best possible class for them? And if you start from that premise, then you end up in a far different place than, all right, I need to transition my class to online. <laughs> you make me think about the language of transformation, really, then. Like, how are you looking at the, the context as something that is part of the change and is sort of 
asset-based space, not in a, you know, I, I, oh, I got to do this because I got to do this sort of space. That's, that's really powerful. And what a, a great modeling of mindset for our students and, and everything else. I think that they're not getting shortchanged, they're not getting less, but that we're all humans in a really complex time humaning together. <laughs> and Sean, as you have mentioned, you know, the, there has been a way in my experience where faculty learning communities, faculty communities learning together has been central in my ability to say, okay, there's another day. There's another day for me to keep trying things that are new because trying something new means it's not going to go exactly as I expected. Sometimes some of your experiences, some of my experiences are like, wow, that was great. That is always going to show up. And other times it was like, oh, I saw that so differently in my mind. <laughs> right. But the, the bravery to do that often comes when you're with another faculty member and you're like, yeah, that did not work. Okay. Not just me. And I, I think this is so important, right? And I know that, that both of you are so involved around campus and I applaud you for your efforts. But I think that we haven't even begun to think about what our classrooms are going to look like after this, right? Like, I mean, let's face it, everything about 2020 was getting to this point in the semester, right? Like it was a successful semester if, if we're all still breathing. And, and right, the three of us are breathing. So it was a successful semester. And I think, right, spring semester, a little bit more freedom. We've been around the track once, like we command. But then thinking about what fall 2021 looks like, I mean, we think that we're probably going to be mostly back to normal, but that doesn't mean that we need to go back to pre COVID times, right? We clearly learned a whole lot about how to teach, how to learn, how to create a community during right the latter two thirds of, of 2020, we ought to start reflecting on some of those lessons and, and start figuring out how it is that we can take the best practices that we've been developing this semester and will certainly continue to develop in the, in the spring and then transition them into an even better, more vibrant classroom next fall and right classroom. Cause who knows what that looks like. All right, so here's my last question that'll tie that up. What is giving you joy right now, Sean? If you're thinking about this really complex time where we can all muck about the hardship, what are you gonna take forward? Like what is giving you joy that you wanna see moving forward in your work as a teacher? Yeah, so what, what gives me joy is just perseverance, right? Like, I mean, God, think about all the ways in which we were knocked down this entire year, right? Like all of the, the trials and the tribulations and the tragedies and right the unnecessary death and and all of that but so we've triumphed right and then right always it always comes back to the students right like fall 2020 was hard right spring 2021 isn't going to be much easier but to get through this in a classroom and then as a community and then as a university I mean, just imagine, right? I, I, right, and this is a nice place to, to end the interview is, is where I began it, right? The sacred spaces of the classroom, how much more sacred is that space gonna be in the fall? Imagine, right, the, like even now just thinking about it, the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up about walking into a classroom with 150 students. Yep. Like what an amazing opportunity that's gonna be. And, and because of everything that we've endured, we're just gonna be so much more grateful and we learned a whole lot about how it is that, that we manage and function and learn, right? I just can't wait to uh, implement that and to make, as I say, the classroom even more vibrant than it was before. 
Banks, Sean, you have invited us to imagine a brighter, better day, but also to think about the work to get there. I love this question about how do we take these lessons and build and continue to ask those hard questions. I'm going to keep that in mind. I appreciate it, Sean. Thanks so much. Pleasure was all mine. So Katie, what resonated with you from that conversation? You know, a lot of things. I think in its most basic way, you know, when you're talking to a great teacher, (laughs) you know, it's Sean has that like incredible skill. And I, from the arts perspective, we call it a callback, like an improvisation, really good improvisers are the smartest people in the room always because they're tracking the conversation and they are ingesting what their partner's giving them improvisationally and like storing it and kind of yes anding to build back and get to the grander idea. So I don't know if Sean does any improv, but he would be a good long form improviser because he does good callbacks. He helped bring threads through, which I just really appreciated. And that idea of sacred space, I mean, that that just resonates to me. I think, again, something else we talk a lot about in the arts and, and about how much we are hungry for and striving for meaning as humans. That is what engages me. That's what gives me a sense of belonging. And I felt like there were just a lot of really important ways Sean was reminding me that I can create sense of meaning and belonging in my teaching. As you say that, Katie, every example he gave us was interactive. It was students conversing with him. It was faculty partnerships. It was all interactive, engaging. And what that did was created opportunities for students to actually feel what it is that Sean is teaching. So Congress is inherently relational under a set of rules. So let's relate under a set of rules. And how does that feel? Similarly with COVID, the class starts with how are you experiencing COVID in your life right now? And let's share those experiences. I love that disposition. And maybe it's what you're describing in improvisation, this disposition to start relationally, to piece this information together through our own lived experiences. And when you put folks in the room, some things that you planned make the outcome possible. And sometimes magic just happens. And to me in global virtual exchange creates the magic. You know, I don't create the magic. The magic comes because we're all in that room. And unlike any other classroom, I know that that global virtual exchange brings something else that will show up for the students. Well, I've heard you tell stories about conversations or or misunderstandings across cultures with students, right? And I think there is something ah, deeply powerful. That's why, that's one of the many reasons why I think that sort of effort is so important and edifying for teachers, uh, professors, faculty at that post-secondary level because it, it forces us to kind of open it up and to release things and to be engaged in the relational way that you have to in a course like that because you're navigating so much newness and out of your control. And again, that is it is a powerful learning space because of that. Well done. Thanks, Katie. All right, take care. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you.